Welcome to the Fear Soul Podcast. I'm Jordan Ray, the Soul Diva, and I'm on a mission for women to love themselves fiercely, live soulfully, transform their trauma and toxic experiences, to reclaim their worth and self-expression. I chat with thought leaders and inspirational women in free-flowing conversations, with a focus on loving yourself, soulful living, emotional well-being, creative expression, and body wisdom, intended to empower you to practice self-love and guide you to your authentic self-expression. Welcome to the Queendom Stories series, inspirational women sharing their transformational stories. Today I have the honour of chatting with the awesome Kate. Welcome Kate. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Very pleased to be here. I know you're going to share your inspirational and life-changing story, but could we start just by taking you back before the shift and just tell us a little bit about life before? Yep, so pre-March 2021. So I've been a social worker for a few years, so 2009, I think I qualified, having had a complete change of career from being like secretary and admin in the past and bringing up my kids. It was time to do something different. And I think for me, social work at that point was engaging with people and hopefully enhancing, supporting, encouraging in their lives. So it was something that I really enjoyed. So I'd work mostly within fostering a little bit of adoption for quite a few years. And also went off up to Cumbria for about nine months. Beautiful up there. My goodness, it rains a lot. Um, I then... In 2016 as well, I went back to university and I trained to become a primary teacher because I'd always wanted to teach. That had always been there. And again, I just felt I'm going to all I don't want to regret not having done it. So I went back to uni for a year. I qualified. I taught in primary school for a year. I absolutely adored having my class but everything else that went with teaching in school at that point and I remember saying at the end of the year I'm leaving and I'm going back to social work it will be less stressful which I thought said something so yeah there was just no work-life balance whatsoever but I handed in my notice but from that a temporary job came up at the university teaching on the social work degree courses And I remember at that point messaging the person that shared the job saying, I don't think I'm remotely qualified for this, but it sounds really interesting. was encouraged to apply and to my shock, I got the job. So that is, well, four years ago today. I've just looked at the calendar. Wow, Four years ago today. So from what was going to be a six-month contract, got extended a little bit. And during that period of time, I was then made permanent. And I say to people, I finally felt like I had found the job I wanted to do when I grew up <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I have grown up but you know that for me it felt it was that combination of all the things that I'd enjoyed it's not to say that it's not a stressful job at times I've loved it and engaging with you know new generations of social work students and the conversations that you have you learn so much from them as well so I'd started that in 2018 had been doing that job bumbling along Then I moved house at the very end of 2020. I've moved house a few times in various years through jobs and various other things. The house I'd been living in before had been my it will do house. It it just never quite felt 
right and circumstances came about that I was actually able to move as opposed to just get some money to do some work on the one I was in and I remember going to see the house I'm living in now walked in and just went this is the one there was this feeling of this one feels like it's going to be my home this feels right we then also went into covid lockdowns because that came about in the march 2020 so with my job all of a sudden learning technology even more (laughs) trying to you know teach students online adapt everything I moved out so I was in my mum's spare room like an overgrown teenager with all of my (laughs) stuff in storage um, for a period so you know it had been it had been quite a stressful period of time you get tired you get run down don't you and you just think well life's busy life's stressful moved into my house I got the keys like the very end of the November and I moved in about two weeks before Christmas me and the cat and then I got a new kitten in the January as well so I was there still teaching online having the kitchen replaced and that was being done sort of weekends like on a Saturday so I was my kitchen was on the dining table for quite a period so you can imagine what you're living in can't you (laughs) It's like chaos. Yeah, boxes <laughs> everywhere. Just and then second of March, twenty twenty one, everything suddenly changed. Yes. So this well, independent, living in chaos. And yeah. I know the little bit that you've you've missed yeah. in there, but it's the bit I've always loved about you was you'd also take yourself off in your camper, complete yeah. independence. Yeah, so. I'd been on my own since late to two thousand and one. Nine eleven happened. My dad died two or three days after that. He'd been very he'd had a massive heart attack in the August bank holiday on machines, ultimately two or three days after 9-11, they were switched off. So that was obviously in September. By the beginning of the November, I was out of my marriage. It was, you know, there was this huge, and lots of people were like, oh, you know, you grieving. And for me, actually, it was a huge catalyst of like, no, no, enough. So yeah, I'd been independent, you know, for 20 years, brought my kids up, exactly as you said. I used to have my little camper van and I'd scarper for a couple of days and sit in a field and ignore everyone, blissful. I, and I was the point of contact, I would say, within my family that, you know, people tend to ring me or I would go and sort stuff out or I would, you know, do the bits of shopping for my mum or I'd help my sister out. Or I'd, you know, I, I was, I guess, not the linchpin. That's not the word I want. But, you know, the, the ma- main person that would be asked me and I would. Yeah, you know, was, you just get on with it, don't you? And then we get to March 2021. Yes. Yes, not that I remember. Well, I was going to say, take take us through what you do remember. Well, so I, I, what I do remember is I'd been doing some emails, typing a report up. I remember typing up. So I don't know if the the Monday was the 2nd of March. Some of the dates and days of the week sometimes for me. But I do know the 2nd of March was the day. But I remember finishing this email about eight o'clock in the evening sending it off to a couple of people and it was for something the next day and saying here's the draft have a look let me know in the morning if there's any issues if not I'll see you in the afternoon for the meeting and I remember thinking I'm going to bed I'm shattered which is how I'd be you know for a quite you know and as I'm sure many many of us were at that point I'm going to bed for me the next thing that I started to become aware of and, and at first I was either thought it, I was having some sort of strange dream or I had been kidnapped by aliens. There was one or the other. 
and I started to wake up in intensive care in hospital in Brighton. And I remember I would wake and I would look, my hand, I don't know if I was laying on my side and I think there were bed bars and I would like look at my hand sometimes and there was a window. And what I didn't realise at that time, I had been airlifted to Brighton and intensive care in Brighton is in a tower block. So you couldn't see, when there was nothing outside the window apart from blue sky, very blue sky. So I, I would just remember, obviously, and I don't know how long, whether this was over a couple of days, but obviously I was, you know, people would come and they were in masks. So faces would come and go, but obviously it took a few days for me to wake up enough, I think, to start to have any sense of where, why, what? And I remember, I do, a lot of it is a blur. So everything I do know now is what, I have been told I I have absolutely no memory I've been back to visit intensive care and was hoping it would trigger something it hasn't so everything I've been told which is a control freak is really frustrating I do really one thing I do remember is people coming up and obviously they were saying do you know where you're, you're in hospital and then I remember someone saying do you know which one and I and I remember that bit being Eastbourne, wouldn't I? Because that's where I live. I don't think I answered them, but I think I just looked at them. They went, you're in Brighton. What? What? And, and again, I have this vague, you know, of this, well, was I at work? What happened? Was I at work then? Because I work over towards Brighton, you know, but we were in COVID. You know, you're just trying to be like, what? <laughs> because I'd been working and I'd gone to bed. That, that for me, was the last thing that I remember yeah until I woke up in intensive care in Brighton about eight or nine days later I think wow yes and my family had been told to say goodbye so many many ambulance crews and first response because I we think I had been laying there wet from where we've tried tracked back in time scales we think that I had been laying at the bottom of the stairs next to a heater so I had a big burn, so I've had to have surgery on the burn, which has also led to nerve damage in my fingers. So we think I had been laying at the bottom of the stairs for about 18 hours. So obviously I hadn't turned up online for work. People had been trying to message me, you know, through various work systems, as well as through like text to my phone and Facebook and Messenger, you know, so all various routes. And I hadn't responded to anyone, which for me is very unusual. And then family, my mum had tried to come by my house that morning to drop something off or whatever. The curtains were still shut, but she wasn't particularly worried at that point because I told her, you know, I've got the builders in and out. There's all sorts of stuff. Sometimes, you know, I'm working really flexibly. So actually, sometimes I haven't got downstairs at nine o'clock. So at that point, she wasn't worried. It was only... about I think about five o'clock that afternoon that my brother had tried to come by for something couldn't get in he'd gone over to our mums and uh, you know I can't get in you know she's not answered her curtains are still shut at which point they then suddenly thought oh that's not right he got in touch with my youngest daughter so my youngest were all you know in their early to mid-20s so essentially her and her other half came over got in the house at which point they found me probably with the cats just treading over me very put out because they'd not had their dinner at that point and I was found at the bottom of the stairs and obviously at which point all hell let loose so yes I think there was a couple of ambulance crews there was first responders etc and then from that the air ambulance the Kent Surrey and Sussex air ambulance crew 
So they met the ambulance I was being transported in at the near Drusillas. But my kids had been told, well, you need to get to Brighton, but you actually need to be prepared for the worst. We don't think she'll be alive by the time she said we get her there. I've met, I've been up and met the air ambulance. I've met the paramedic, the doctor. They do six months and they move on. But I went last November. It was Remembrance Sunday, actually, because I have a dress that's got poppies on. There's a picture of me wearing it. And the paramedic just kept looking at me. He was just sitting with his arms folded in the chair, just shaking his head. Because I think it was, not only are you alive, you're actually just still alive, but you're walking, you're talking, you're now driving a bit. You know, you, you're a functioning human being. I was amazed how much detail that he remembers. And he'd said, you know, my pupils were blown. Prior to it, I had no health issues. I mean, I was, you know, I was tired, I was stressed. I had no health issues. He, he said that they asked a question about, because my obviously the first crews must have said, you know, were there anything, was I diabetic, blah, 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 blah. No. And he said that they had asked the crew about blood sugars or something. And they said, oh, we've tried, but we think our machine's broken. It wasn't. My levels were so far off the scale high that they weren't registered on the machine and he said that basically that the result the blood results that they got are usually incompatible with life which was a bit like yeah wow okay yeah wow how did it feel when you've obviously gone and met all of these people and hearing these stories it's very strange it's still very I think it will always be very very surreal because it's like telling somebody else's story Mm. because for me I have you know until I started to wake in hospital and I was in hospital seven or eight weeks in total and a lot of that is still a blur you know I was very very ill all all of that time so yeah it's very strange it really is like telling somebody else's story because everything I know is either what I've been told verbally or what I've read you know in intensive care they they do like a little diary for you although it stopped about two days before so obviously I had been vent you know I had every machine and every tube in the world Mm -hmm. so that had the diary stopped a couple of days before that was all removed so so there is a gap but it's really odd yeah it turned out that it was a very it's called dka and i cannot remember the very long technical term but it's a severe life-threatening diabetic complication where obviously everything all the levels are absolutely sky high but usually people are aware you know they are diabetic there's an awareness there's a build-up what nobody knows is quite why why this came out the blue and so severe and so sudden and then once I was awake I think it was about a week and a half after I woke up in intensive care so a couple about you know two and a half weeks after all of this it was obviously apparent that there was some real issues with my speech my communication my processing you know I was obviously very poorly and they took me off for a scan and I remember being wheeled down and them saying oh you were down here a couple of weeks ago but obviously you wouldn't remember this (laughs) oh 
and then a doctor who looked like Patsy Kenzie. I felt, I often felt as though I was in an episode of Holby City. It was really weird. But I remember her coming and, and saying, oh, we've got the results of your scan. You've had a stroke. And I think I just remember looking at her and she was like, do you want us to tell your families? No, I don't. You know, I was crying. I cried a lot. And I'm not normally a crier. I'm very practical. I'm not a crier. I cried an awful awful lot when I was in Brighton. I'm hearing all of this. I'm hearing everything your body has gone through, yet alone the rest of you. I'm not surprised. I think a week or so after that, I had, it's a deep line they can put in, I think, to get to your arteries for bloods and, you know, I mean, I had cannulas and tubes here, there and everywhere, but that then became infected. So they had to get that out. And so, because I think I was suddenly very suddenly becoming very, very ill. Um, and obviously they then realised there was something. So, so yeah, it was, it was a joyous time. And then I had a week where I was transferred to hospital in Eastbourne, which I tend to refer to as the week of hell. And then on again to Hastings because I had to have the surgery for the burn and orthopaedics. It, it was being overseen by plastic surgery. So I did the, the Sussex hospital tour as well. So yes, it, I went from life how it was to life being very different. And quite literally overnight. Yes. And as a control freak, you know, having this huge gap is yeah. deeply frustrating. And I'm aware that we're sat now chatting and you're talking reasonably fluidly and fluidly about everything. But what has been the real shift and the real impact on you? So for me, I suppose it's been the impact of the stroke. And I struggle with acceptance. I don't really do acceptance. But actually being able to say, you know, I have a brain injury because ultimately that's what's happened. So the diabetes is is almost secondary. So I was on insulin the whole time I was in hospital, but the nurses were having to manage it because the, my eyes had become very, very blurry, which apparently they're now fine. But apparently that was a consequence of the blood sugars being sky high. So I had blurry vision, but also my processing and understanding, you know, I just couldn't couldn't figure it out. So actually, by the time I came out of hospital in the middle of April, I was discharged and it was just on tablets because everything had just dropped. And these days, everything is within normal limits. Oh, brilliant. Which is great. But what I've been told is this this DKA, this suddenness, because nobody really understands where that came from, why it was so sudden, why it was so severe, that I have to have an awareness that that could happen again. So I do... I test my blood sugars and stuff at intervals and I have reviews. with the But for me... The diabetes is sort of a secondary thing. It's there in the background. You know, I'd, I'd lost literally, well, my certificate came through while I was in hospital. I'd lost four and a half stone in weight in the year prior. I thought, you know, well, work had been busy. I'd been moving house, but I had been going to Slimming World. I had been working really hard on losing weight as well. And I was like, that's not supposed to be the deal. You're supposed to develop a healthy lifestyle to be healthy and not get ill. But for me, the impact has been a stroke speech was really challenging and I know my kids and my family say you know because it was covid so there was no visitors there was an ipad so I had to get the nurses to like do it to facetime because I couldn't see enough to 
see the detail and they say you know it was very I was speaking very short sentences like groups of words and I I mean my daughter says I'm less entertaining now because I don't put random words in the middle of sentences like I were was back then I remember I wanted Ribena or something I couldn't think of the words for Ribena I remember that they would come round and say oh you know this is the lunch choices and there's this or this or this and I would just sort of look at them and eventually I'd be able to go second one because I couldn't retain I couldn't process I couldn't I also didn't have a voice it well other than it was I used to speak like that the whole time I was in hospital so in Eastbourne I was wheeled off down to ENT and they shoved a camera up my nose I remember being hysterical and distressed at that point I was in pieces because they wasn't they weren't sure if it was all to do with the ventilation tubes and everything and then a doctor came in at some point after that and it's interesting because nobody there's nothing on the notes nobody knows who it was things got very disjointed when I left Brighton and came to Eastbourne and Hastings but I was basically told they thought it was PTSD and interestingly I was poorly a couple of weeks ago with a horrible cough and cold and things my voice disappeared and it seems to happen when I'm unwell that it goes so it came home in the middle of April former psychologist phoned me a couple of weeks because she was trying to follow up I they were trying to get neuropsychology I should have had it while I was in hospital but I was too ill etc so then the community stroke team came out so I had from sort of I would say early May through to about the middle of August occupational therapist came out a few times the speech therapist and then I had a rehab worker for about six weeks, once a week. So it was a combination of trying to develop speech and thinking and problem solving and processing. And, you know, I'm in a very different place now to where I was in a year ago. But I've also learned to hide a lot of stuff. You learn to mask things. <laughs> I will I will use, when I'm speaking, I will use words often that I know are the words that I really want. And they're much simpler because I just can't either find it or get it from my brain to my mouth quick enough. I was just thinking when you were talking about the masking, is the masking for you or for other people? A bit of both, maybe. It's adapting to it. And I, you know, I've spent a very long time fighting against this a very long time saying to be you know I'm not me I'm not me anymore people try to be really well-meaning and it's it's interesting when you're in a different place and you know they think well but you're just the new you I was like, but I don't want a new me I didn't ask for it and I haven't it's not a choice and I'm really angry I don't want a new one I was fine with the old one I'm very conscious now of like well people might see me differently or think about me or and what I do find is if I'm very stressed I'm tired I'm anxious my speech tends to go it, it becomes more effort or I just can't get the words out a lot of the time it then becomes a lot harder work and you know you do worry about all well, people will think you're stupid that for me has been a huge thing well pe- people will just think I remember talking with my speech therapist and and we sort of got to this sort of I would say to people or oh, words get stuck words get stuck because I needed to excuse you know for, to explain straight away because I didn't want people to look at me while I'm standing there trying to and then thinking well what's wrong with her 
And I know one of the conversations you and I have had is that subtle similarity between some of your experiences and then my experiences with long COVID. Absolutely. And, and with you saying that, it's exactly what I know that I do as well. Mm. That if I'm extremely tired or it's just too much of, of starting those conversations with, sorry, sometimes I lose my word. Yeah, I may. I went and did a fear of flying course. It's one of the things that have been on my list for a while. And somebody at some point went, stop, you know, you start all of your sentences with sorry. And that's what you start. And I was like, God, but it, oh, sorry, my words. Oh, sorry, I can't think of that. Sorry, I've got you know. And you, so straight away, you're trying. You don't want to be seen as as different in quotes, but but you're trying to almost explain to people this is why I am the way I am now because you. It's a different world. It's a different world. Really interesting that somebody noticed and commented on it. Yeah, and apologising for who you are, yeah. even though the core of you is the same person. Mm, yeah. yeah, it was strange, but, but there's something about, well, you know, but if I don't say this, people, you know, what will people be thinking? Those worries, so yeah. You know, I still will have my moments now sometimes where I will say to people, bear with me, my words get stuck. Sometimes it takes a minute to get from here to here. If I know, if, if I know I'm struggling, if I know it's a day where I'm tired or anxious or so on, you know, for me that those times are more so in recent months where I've had even more traumatic experience of having to have PIP assessment phone calls and so you know. I mean, we'll not even start on my views <laughs> about that whole process because we'll be here till Christmas. Most people that have worked in social care or how in England would agree yeah. with you. Having to navigate, say my social work professional background was working in, you know, fostering with the foster carers. So actually, I've never really had to encounter things like PIP and, and buying for a blue badge. You know, for the, all of this mm. was quite new to me. So you're suddenly... In this very strange new world where you are struggling to do things maybe the way you would have done in the past, you know, your life is not how it used to be. And on top of that, these expectations, especially when your brain is not working the same way it used to, these expectations about trying to navigate systems such as PIP or ESA and all of the paperwork that that comes with and that you know the administrative expectation and obviously because of covid a lot of things are happening on the phone these days it's like well actually if your brain's not working very well and your speech is hard you know thing everything being done by phone is really not great is it it's almost the bit where i was like sam when i was waking up in hospital and it was like well was i kidnapped by aliens or something because it's like i have no other logical ex you know, explanation for what might be happening here. And it is almost still being in a very alien world of navigating all of these different systems and ways of being. I have always been very independent. I've always been, you know, I'm fine, leave me alone, I'll do it, that's me. So suddenly, you know, having to have help and accept and it took me back to one of your first words were about the accepting so yeah I spent a very long time I think fighting against it and you know for me as I said I loved my job I finally felt like I'd got to the job that I wanted to be doing and I was enjoying and I remember when the very first person the OT from the stroke team came out in early May to do like an assessment and they were like so what are your goals I don't know do I and then I was like well, I want to go back to work. 
One, I'd like this to have all not happened. Thank you very much. But actually, what I want to do is I want to go back to work. I want to just get back to how I was. I want to don't want to have a stick because obviously I came out of hospital. I was on like a little a walking frame when I was in hospital. And then I came out with a stick. You're in bed for a very long time and the stroke had impacted and so on. So I was like, well, I just don't want any of this stuff. I don't want to have to have the thing that I put on my bath because I can't sit in the bath and get in and out. I've got to sit on this board. I don't want all of this. I just want life to go back to how it was and I want to go back to work. And I remember talking to the OT in the June and saying, do you know what? Physically, I'm starting to feel, a lot. you know, I, I think I'm ready to be going back to work. And I remember him looking at me, so a bit pitifully going, just shaking his head slowly. <laughs> and it took pretty much, well, it was another 11 months before actually I went back to work. So I only went, started to go back to work in May this year, three months ago. So 14 months off, I never in my wildest dreams ever thought I'd be away that long you are back and I'm not minimizing the 14 months but you are back yes in the way that allows you to function yes you know for me I've had to learn to pace myself I have never been great at that I've always been the one going 90 miles an hour doing everything in my personal life as well as outside of work oh I'll do that I'll give this away oh I'll help with that I'll take this on I'll do that you know that's always been very much me so you know massive massive learning curves has been having to learn to adapt and to pace myself. One of my colleagues in the early days, I remember her sending me like a little link to spoons theory, which is you've got, you know, 12 spoons for the day and basically you've got to work out how you allocate them because when they've run out, they've run out. You talk and people go, oh, yeah, I get tired too. And I again, I know you and I were talking, you know, this whole impact. It's not about, I mean, you are tired, but it's about you just suddenly hit this brick wall because your brain is like, done, finished for the day. I've stopped. At which point you can't, you can't function. There have been many, many days even before being back at work, you know, where I was like, I don't have the energy to actually cook food or think about anything. If I have got any energy to think about it, it might just be that I can put a piece of toast in or some cereal. And of course, then like the, you know, the regular phone calls from the dietitian who was trying to oversee, you know, when you're saying, well, actually, I'm too exhausted to function. I'm just having cereal or toast. Well, but you shouldn't be having that with your diabetes. You need to do this. And I was like, well, yeah, but you're going to come cook. <laughs> having to learn to adjust, to live your life differently is it's probably going to be an ongoing challenge for me, you know, because I'm, I'm not great. And as you've said several times, it's adjusting for, to something that you haven't chosen. Yeah. That your your word, your control freak. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so learning to adapt, learning to accept. It's interesting because people say, "Well, I think you have accepted it." Um, I'm not sure. I think I'm realistic. I'm realistic enough to, as much as I would prefer to pretend it's not happened. You know, denial is my happy place. I do know it has happened and it has impacted on my life and the way I live my life. You know, I I recently, again, these whole bureaucratic processes with benefits and government departments and so on. So I recently got a blue badge, you know, getting a blue badge and people are going, oh, see, it's a perk. Hmm, not entirely sure mentally or emotionally, that's quite where I am. But What I knew was I needed that to be able, because I was able to drive, but I avoid rush hour and I go, I tend to only drive to familiar 
places and you know sensory overload is something that's very new for me so you very much adapt and it's actually if I can drive to wherever and then I can park near the building so being back at work what it means is I'm conserving the energy to do the job because there's no way I can walk all the way up uphill from the station or the car park so again it's that acknowledgement that yes I need this but actually I'm not really overjoyed I'm not entirely sure I can see it as a perk but I did, I hit a point and I think, you know, there, what for me, there was something about getting back to work was like, finally, thank God. And it did feel like I was having to fight to get that for a very long time, a real push. Work have been very good in terms of, you know, I'm still building up slowly and part time. I'm going to have to drop a day a week. And I'm sure, you know, being off on a Friday is going to be lovely. But again, it's about it's not necessarily a choice that I've made willingly it's a choice that's come about through the situation so but I can work from home a bit where I can you know I pace again I pace myself I have to think about well what else have I got on and adapting so I got to a point I would say probably a couple of months or so ago obviously although it was the year anniversary in the March you know it's taken a little bit while I got back to work and, and I was a bit like okay I need I need to move on from this somehow now. I've done all the things that I can do. And in terms of, yeah, going visiting the air ambulance, going back to intensive care and meeting the consultants and the nurse and talking. And I've done everything I can. You know, the stroke team were finished. And it's very strange because you have all of this input for a few months and then they sign you off and it's like, well, there you go. See ya. And you just sit there and you're a bit like, is that it now? I have had fabulous support from headway who i was already aware of because i followed them because i'm a great advocate for twitter i followed them on twitter anyway we actually have students there sometimes and it came about through a tweet about sensory overload actually that i replied to in about october last year going oh my god yes this this is a whole me and my all of my family we always laugh and we're always a bit like we'll message sometimes so it's too peopley out there <laughs> but but actually sensory overload and not being able to, eat, you know, I've gone into a supermarket. I went in at some point and I just turned around and walked straight back out. because It's like it's too bright. It's too busy. It's too noisy. I can't think. I don't know what I need. I just have to get out. I have to get out now. And, it, you know, these feelings of panic. So, you know, in the October, I think it came about through, you know, replying to some tweets. And then I had a phone conversation with, with somebody who encouraged me to join like one of the online support groups. And, and I was always about don't do groups, don't do people it's been fabulous it's been the the group of people that I link with so informative as well really informative really helpful really good actually to know that you're not the only one experiencing that they were the group of people so when I I I did my fear of flying course in May that was the first time I had flown or been abroad in 21 years wow that's amazing life is too short and then I went to Mallorca for a few days so I flew I, I went not flew on my own as in the only person on the plane but you know I went I traveled alone it was exhausting I mean my god it nearly finished me the exhaustion of the whole thing but that group of people encouraged me to tick the box for special assistance when I was booking the holiday because I was like no I'm fine I'm fine you know thank god I ticked that box because I would have been lost without it it was very overwhelming you know I haven't obviously flown for a very long time so navigating so that support you know that support through headway has been 
amazing because other than that it's you're just suddenly just you know you come out of hospital or like medically you know and for me in Brighton it was all very coherent and one consultant had an oversight of all of the various things that were happening Eastbourne and then Hastings it became very disjointed yeah and then the stroke team for three months and then they sign you off and, and you are you just cut adrift you cut adrift totally well, and I know this was a conversation when I used to do all the mental health work in A&E, yeah. that we would reflect from the, the mental health side about how disjointed the medical side was. Mm. There wasn't that one person that it sounded like you did have when you were in Brighton, yeah. who had the oversight, who was able to see you as a person as a whole. Mm. Yes, very much. And yeah, as soon as I was discharged out from there over to Eastbourne and then to Hastings obviously different hospital trust different. the culture of it was just completely different and everything it felt it got very lost very lost you know for me finding sort of headway on a personal level in the October has been the thing that's got me through I guess you're not just there on your own this particular group of people have been fantastic and it really has been the thing for me yeah that appreciation that you're not the only one out there you're not the only one experiencing you know some of these things and from so for me it was a stroke obviously for others it's come about through all sorts of whether it be accidents or so but it's it's the fallout of it and you know I know you and I have talked about the similarities with long COVID and about the impact you know that brain injury and there probably needs to be a huge amount of research around that no absolutely I mean all the stuff you've obviously talked about in terms of that sensory overload walking into the the shop and it's too bright or too noisy or whatever I got back to you know I'd had sort of that for a period of time and then I got myself you know I got back to work getting you know getting there building up to it I, you know I have to I work slightly different you know so I, I will tend to say to people because one of the things that I discovered was that I hate all of these these phrases I mean I can just about deal with service user and I know you know with our students that we get them to write that in essays because there's probably no short fairly short simple way of doing it but actually I hate all of these phrases like, you know, expert by experience or lived experience or survivor of. I particularly hate survivor, even though I am. So I will say to people, oh, you know, my brain doesn't quite work the same way anymore. That's something I can deal with. But yeah, I, I got to a point where I'm like, I need to sort of move on somehow a bit. If Not that I'd been wallowing, but it felt like, you know, I've had this year and a half, well, not quite a year and a half, but I've had this period of time, you know, I've been almost like, the patient the ill person you know I've had the stroke hurt but actually you know now I'm back at work and I need to do something and I need yeah to move to move my life on in in some way so and you know various things that either I've become involved in or that have happened that have I guess leading me probably now to the next stages because you know I have to fill my time up because that's what I'm like despite the spoons and the pacing yes I need to fill my time up and so you're saying about the things you're getting involved in I know you've been very vocal and you've been a big advocate for the air ambulance yeah I think you sort of have in your back of your mind don't you that you know that there are all of these various charities and organizations doing fantastic work But it's that realisation of like, sorry, but they're a charity. So they're reliant on fundraising to keep providing this service. What the hell? And I remember when I visited back in the November saying to them, you know, because then you become aware that actually 
you can do bits of volunteering you know there's there are ways with all of the charities and organizations of supporting aren't there and I remember saying then when I'm at a point where I'm able to I want to do something so I filled in the um, volunteer application form a couple of weeks or so ago so I'm waiting for once they've done like the references and the bits I'm hopefully we'll go up for an induction day to Red Hill and there are various so there are various roles and you can sort of select the ones that you think you might be interested in and thinking about you know what's likely to work for me so I've actually avoided the ones that are around the raffle tickets or the um, fundraising collection boxes and things because for me numbers don't quite work the same way in my brain anymore and I think my god I used to teach maths in primary school like they were year five so they were a 10 and 11 year old and I was like actually now I really struggle you know I have to use a calculator I have to double check it's a lot slower so there are different aspects they have what they call the cheer squad so I think if people are running like the Brighton Marathon for example you can be there at a table and dish out the bottles of water and like well done and clap and I'm thinking that's fine because I could probably get there have a chair I can sit down I can do it for a period of time they also and one of the roles was public speaker going and talking to groups of people about the work that the air ambulance does well I'm a lecturer you know I and as you can hear now you know I talk despite (laughs) despite the stroke it hasn't stopped me I'm still talking yeah I'm very much that actually I I want to do something you know and they send out emails you have a look you think about what you can or can't do and when you so there's not a massive massive time commitment but for me, uh, you know, what I can't do is the sponsored walks, or et cetera, et cetera. I just don't have the capacity. Fatigue is a, is one of the things that I really struggle with these days. But it's OK, but what can I do? You know, this for me is a way of giving back a little bit and raising some awareness. And then alongside that, through Headway, and where this is where I have this weird personal and professional blend coming in is I've become sort of involved and will hopefully on an ongoing basis delivering some training to a local authority to the adult social care like with other professionals about brain injury and safeguarding and for social workers how that might you know how we can help develop their practice and their understanding and their knowledge and hopefully this also is going to lead to maybe some other strands of things that because I think you know I feel I'm not religious particularly or anything but I, I'm a great believer in things happen for a reason and much as I'm very cross about what's happened to me <laughs> It's now leading me to do some other things. And I think, you know, I'm at, I am in a privileged position that I can do those things. So therefore I should do those things. Hey, you and I could keep talking for oh, we could. <laughs> forever. We will put up the links for Headway and the Kent Surrey Sussex yeah. Air Ambulance in the podcast notes. And we're also going to drop your Twitter handle in case yes. this is resonating with anybody. Anybody Absolutely. wants to connect, they can connect. But just to finish, if there's somebody out there going through something similar, all of those words that you didn't like hearing, all of that, <laughs> those things you didn't like, are there any words that you would say to them? Oh, gosh, that's a tricky one. I mean, I think in a lot of ways sometimes it's just about it's about it takes time I've had to and I still you know there are still things I'm still fighting against it in some ways but it's about you know you will get to a point where maybe it's you know so well thinking well actually what are the other possibilities what are the other options instead of just keep really fighting against this so hard all the time that's exhausting is that getting me anywhere maybe not or what 
what else could I maybe, how could I adapt possibly? It takes time. It takes time. And sometimes you need to be in the right place. Certainly, yeah, for Headway, I was very much, I don't really do this. I don't do groups. I don't do people. I don't do that. And, and there was this, well, but why not give it a try? Why not just give it a try? All right, then. Well, I suppose so. You know, it was a little, and, and actually, you know, being able to, to say, do you know what? I was wrong, actually. I, I suppose, I, you know, I say to people, maybe think about, is there a different way that you could look at this? You know, I'm a huge advocate for people feeling the feelings and allowing them to move through. It's not mm. always just about feeling positive and being positive. Yeah. So it's okay to be in that place of anger. Have a what and have a wallow and have a cry and be angry. Absolutely. Yeah. But just don't get stuck there for no. months, years. No. And yeah, and I think, you know, that that was it. There was for me, it was about, well, I've got back to work. I've, you know, I've been and done these various visits. I've done, I've done all of that stuff. And actually I now need to move it on a bit move it on okay I have loved this I've loved hearing the full story the full experience and like I said I know there is just so much more but I just want to say thank you and thank you for for coming and sharing with everybody it's a pleasure it's been you know it's been really good and I hope that yeah it does help people in whatever ways that you know sometimes yeah things are thrown at you that you haven't necessarily chosen but maybe somehow or somewhere eventually you you find some of the positives out of it thank you thank you for joining me for yet another fierce soul conversation to find out more about me and my work please see the links in the show notes And don't forget to like, share and subscribe. I look forward to you joining me next time.